we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less you eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, B.C., Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, March 13th, 2020. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson, and I'm here in the studio today with my guest control room operator, Jim Mingi. Spring is just around the corner, and that means it's gardening season. Today's show is all about veganic or stock-free gardening and farming. In other words, farming and gardening without the use of any animal inputs, such as manure or blood meal. Our first guest is Giovanna Johnson-Cook, a veganic farmer, vegan chef, and food justice activist based in Atlanta, Georgia. Giovanna is the co-founder and owner of My Two Foods, a vegan meal delivery service and food justice project, and Grow Where You Are, a veganic farming collective that helps train aspiring urban farmers. Hello, Giovanna, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hi, thank you so much for having me. For sure, thanks for being here. So, first of all, can you tell us what is My Two Foods and what kind of work do you do with this project? Uh, My Two Foods is a food-based delivery service. Um, That's our main thing, but we're also a food educational service as well. Um, So, we have programs like our Vegan Lunch Program, which serves um, mostly inner-city kids um, in... I guess you can say neighborhoods that are uh, blighted, um, that are um, disenfranchised, that are low-wage environments. Um, we serve them vegan lunches, a plant-based meal, um, as well as we have the food delivery service just for our regular clientele, and then we have a food delivery service for pregnant and postpartum mothers. That's all plant-based. Um, it's kind of hard to say what we do because we do so much mm-hmm. um, under both of our umbrellas, but um, our main thing is our food programs where we serve plant-based meals to different people in, in the community. That's beautiful. So for the school lunch program, do you um, do you kind of set that up with the schools? You make an arrangement and then you, you go in at lunchtime and serve them vegan school lunches? Basically. So, yeah, schools reach out to us um, that are interested or that have heard about us through word of mouth. Um, and we just we come through and we set up programs where we just deliver lunch every single day for the kids that's plant-based. And My Empty Foods actually handles all of the, um, the menu planning and things like that. And we just let the schools know what's going to be on the menu. And they've been so far pretty open to it over the last few years. So it's been a really great success. That's awesome. So the My Two Foods website states that your overall mission is to, quote, honor the art of food rituals and to serve humanity in a way that promotes the least harm and the most good for people, animals, and the environment, which I find so beautiful and inspiring. Uh, Can you elaborate on the concept of honoring food rituals? Well, when I think about food rituals, I just think about, I mean, how we have food has such a central role in society and um, within different cultures and just honoring the reverence that we have for the bounty of nature um, and for our relationship with Mother Earth and how we receive so much of our sustenance from that. So honoring that ritual and those rituals that have gone back throughout time where people actually honor the earth, honor nature for providing us with sustenance, for, for providing us with nutrients and providing us with the foods that we eat. Absolutely. So, um, can you tell us what is veganic farming and how does that work? Veganic farming, it's, it's, you're bringing vegan and organic together. And so it's a farming method that utilizes no animal inputs. Um, so that includes like no fertilizers um, from animals at all. Um, and we basically, we grow with green manure. So it's also a system that's based on permaculture. So we utilize what's in the environment that we're already in. So we try our best to work with nature and use just whatever whatever we grow, what's left over from that or what's um, after it's run through its cycle, we reuse that to replenish the next you know generation of crops. So it's just working with the cycles of life, working with the cycles of nature um, and doing the least harm that we can when we are growing food in any given environment. 
Cool. So, um, oh yeah, just for our listeners, can you tell us what what is green manure? Green manure is basically when you have, um, say, it's kind of like compost, and it's um, it basically that's what it is. Actually, it is mm. actually compost. Um, so taking like uh, food scraps or leftover um, foods from like crops, and just allowing that to um, decompose. And then using that to feed um, the next generation of plants and using that to feed the soil as well. It, it all breaks down um, in nature. So once it breaks down, we utilize that because it turns into soil and utilize that soil to then feed the fields and feed the new seedlings to grow more plants. Right. So um, what would you say are some of the the benefits to veganic farming versus conventional or, or even normal or whatever, regular organic farming? Wow. I think the main one is that we work with the cycles of nature. We actually work with nature as opposed to working against it, which is what we find in conventional farming. Um, again, um, with us, the premise is to cause the least harm. So actually really just watching nature to get our cues for how you know how she does things and i call nature she because i think of it as you know a great mother but i mean in, in any way that you think of nature just looking at how nature grows and then it goes through a cycle of decay and death but it's all within a certain kind of balance so understanding that balance and working with that balance as opposed to working against it understanding life cycles understanding how the earth nourishes itself and it's just it's just a system of regulations and uh checks and balances that we just we mimic from nature um in all of our practices when we farm cool um do you find that there are any challenges to veganic farming that you might not encounter in other farming methods i think the only challenge is just understanding that i mean there's it's not predictable you know, um, and which is, it's not, it's a challenge, but it's, I think that's just life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just being able to go with the flow to understand that sometimes you may get a great, you may get a great crop, they may get a good harvest. Sometimes you may not, depending on the seasons, depending on, you know, soil conditions, it could go either way. And just being able to trust and, um, in that whole process and to be able again to trust nature and, you know, to know that some, somehow, some way the earth knows what it's doing and to be able to trust that. I think a lot of times as humans we have this kind of control thing going on so Mm -hmm. i think that would be the only challenge is realizing that there are some spaces in life where we are absolutely not in control and it's okay to kind of just go with the flow and allow you know things to flow as they're going to Mm -hmm. so tell us about grow where you are wow um grow where you are is um a collective of farmers um also a collective of chefs and food artisans, and it, it keeps growing and growing and growing. But it's basically, it's our collective of farmers. Um, and we concentrate a lot on food justice, on um, working with farmers to empower farmers, um, and also doing work in the community to allow people to understand that they can have food sovereignty, that they can have the ability to grow their own food and have a say in what foods come in into their community and into their bodies. Excellent. So um, I understand that you do workshops with people on, on veganic agriculture? Yes. Um, we have, we, over the years, we've been doing this for about 15 years now. We have workshops where people come out to like, volunteer and they come out and they learn farming methods. We also have programs where we have chefs that come out um, who want to get, you know, more in touch with the food that they're utilizing in their kitchens. And so they come out and they train with us. Um, we work with children. We have uh, children's summer programs and after-school programs where we teach children um, the um, art of uh, eating, you know, a plant-based diet, but also the art of farming as well and teaching them how to, you know, if they choose to utilize these skills to one day, if not have a career in it, but to just be able to sustain themselves and to, you know, sustain their families. Amazing. So how long have you been vegan and what brought you to a vegan lifestyle? Wow, um, <laughs> I'm gonna age myself. I've been <laughs> vegan, jeez. Uh, if it's 2018 now, it's been about ooh, uh, 17 years. Wow, I've been vegan. Um, and it's it's funny. I was uh, we were growing up in high school. Um, there was a time period where a lot of music was coming about out about like in hip hop about how we ate. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it was like Dead Prez talked about 
having a like a vegan diet. I remember Erica Badu would talk about it a lot. But also I have a um, really good friend um, who he read a book called Healing with Whole Foods. Um, when we were like we we were young kids, we had to be in high school, and he just called me one day and he was like, "Look, we have to stop eating this way. It's not good for our bodies." Wow. Um, and he was such a big inspiration in my life, so I just said, "Okay, well, if you do it, then I'll do it." And so, at like around like yeah, when I was in high school, I came to my mom and said, "I'm not eating any animals anymore, and I'm not going to be eating um, any dairy or eggs." And of course, she thought that I was absolutely insane, right. but. <laughs> but she was like, I don't know what you're going to eat then because I cook everything. But actually, after some time, she actually, you know, accommodated me. So I'm thankful for that. So, yeah, it was, it's been a journey. Um, but it all started really with just the culture of the time and um, just being informed about different ways of living, you know, at a young age that we didn't have to continue eating the way we were eating. Right. Very cool. So what does food justice look like to you? Wow, that's a that's a that's a big one. I think food justice run, runs kind of like hand in hand with just justice. Period. You know, people having the sovereign right to be able to live, really, um, to be able to have a say in what it is that they are putting into their bodies, to be well informed, um, to have access to good and healthy foods, to, and to have access to the information about you know what we eat and how that affects not only ourselves, but the planet. Um, yeah, there's so many layers to food justice, but I really think it's people really just being informed and, <clears throat> excuse me, having the opportunities to um, just make, a, make sound choices based off of, you know, truthful information. Absolutely. So what are some things that everyday people can do to work towards achieving food justice and to help marginalized communities to access more nourishing foods? Wow. Um, I think really it starts with, because we're such a consumer-based society, it's really where we put our money um, and where we put our attention. Um, I think that says a lot, um, mm. especially for the everyday person, you know, how, what we consume and how we consume, and um, not only just as far as uh, food, but information, and then how we share it, and just being open to being open to new ideas, um, being open to new experiences. Um, I think a lot has happened with like a lot of the movies that have been coming out about plant-based diets. Um, a lot of, you know, now there being a lot more options that people can have um, when they go to the grocery store, they have options on, you know, meat alternatives and things like that. I think that says, you know, a lot and it helps a lot. But I think really just on a day-to-day -day basis, just, you know, keeping ourselves informed and um, just being open to new ideas and new experiences, which are really not new, but, you know, to some people that, you know, they are. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just going back to some of the work that you're doing with My Two Foods and everything, I was thinking about how on your website it, it mentions that you make an effort to... Um, to ensure that the meals that you serve are culturally appropriate. And I'm assuming that means that you, you probably work with a number of different communities, right, and, and make an effort to right. um, serve foods that might be familiar to them, familiar flavors and that sort of thing. And um, it, am I right about that? Is that what you mean by... Um, yes. Um, initially, we were, we were mostly um, within a community, a, a community of color. So mm -hmm. we, we wanted to be mindful of just, I mean... Because traditionally, especially in the, well, I'm in the southern United States, especially mm -hmm. the south, the diet is so heavy, and traditionally it's been so heavy with um, animal, I, I hate to say animal products, it just sounds so horrible to say that, yeah. but, um, <laughs> oh gosh, but with, you know, what people know as, like, animal products is, you know, they're heavy meat eaters, heavy, um, heavy dairy consumers, and we wanted to make sure that the foods were that we were transitioning people into or introducing people to were um, familiar. Mm -hmm. um, so we did a lot of alternatives to things. So, um, but that were things that were culturally sound. But we also did our best to pull back from like old traditions or from cultures around the world that we were experiencing that we were experiencing that were plant based as well, mm -hmm. um, and also keeping in tradition with the things that grow within a certain area mm -hmm. because those are also, you know, they have a, their own cultural history. Um, 
And so just keeping in mind, like, again, going back to the idea of food rituals, but just keeping in mind, like, what people eat within a certain area, um, what they traditionally ate, and doing our best to accommodate um, those different tastes um, and different preferences but from a vegan approach. Um, and we also do a lot of things that we work within a international community mm-hmm. because of the work that we do. We meet so many people from different places. And so when we, we're constantly in training. Not, we don't only train people, but we're also training ourselves. So we've had experiences with different chefs from different back, backgrounds. And so whenever we come in contact with someone that's, you know, from a different background than us, it's, you know, I feel like it's our duty to have a exchange of information, of cultural information, um, whether that's through um, training under a chef from a different cultural tradition and learning those dishes so that if we're in those communities or if we are even introducing a new kind of cuisine to our own community, that we're informed, you know, not from this kind of like generic place, but we're, you know, we're doing our best to be as authentic as possible um, because we want to honor, you know, the differences um, in culture. Um, within our society and, you know, give people, again, things that are familiar, give people things that um, are comforting and that remind them of just who they are and where they come from because we think in that way, you know, it's a bit easier to, you know, move forward with the conversation and with the ideas of moving towards a plant-based no diet and plant-based living. Absolutely. Yeah, that that makes so much sense to me. It's a great approach. Uh, So, yeah, so to finish up, how can our listeners support the work that you're doing with Grow Where You Are and My Two Foods? Um, If you just contact us through uh, either mytwofoods.com or growwhereyouare.farm, we also have a Patreon site where we allow people to... um, have access to some of the things that we're doing, um, whether it's uh, workshops or some of our written materials, um, videos of like how-tos, um, books and things. Um, we have a Patreon account under Grow Where You Are and people can support us that way. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Animal Voices today, Giovanna, and for all of your wonderful work. Thank you for work. having me. And once again, that was Giovanna Johnson-Cook, veganic farmer, vegan chef, and food justice activist from Atlanta, Georgia. You're listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM CFRO, Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, B.C., Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Coming up next, Stephen Hunt of Brightside Blueberries and Such, just outside of Duncan, B.C., provides us with a comprehensive explanation of veganic farming methods and shares tips on how to start your own veganic garden. Stephen is a master gardener and has been farming using veganic methods for over 11 years. We started off by asking Stephen to define veganic gardening. Sure. So the term veganic itself is, is sort of an amalgamism of vegan and organic. So as such, I think it tries to take the ideas of organic gardening, but add in an extra element of basically respect for animal life and the, the tenets of veganism to guide the practices in gardening. So all veganic gardening is organic, but not all organic is veganic. Is that right? Right. And and I could I guess conceivably you could have a vegan garden that is not necessarily organic because I would suspect that some synthetic fertilizers, for example, I guess synthetic ammonium, for example, that doesn't that's derived from minerals and from natural gas would probably pass muster for being vegan, but of course it's not in right. itself organic. So conceivably, these are all things that can kind of interchange. So, but in order to be veganic, it needs to be both organic and okay. follow vegan Good. principles. So, and how long have you been veganic farming? For sons, we actually, we began, we were vegan before uh-huh. we started gardening. And I guess in a way, <laughs> veganism itself sort of lends itself to wanting to have a garden because you obviously you're emphasizing consumption of vegetables yourself and so that was about uh, mid, mid to late 2000s when we became vegan and in 2009 I took a master gardener course at the uh, the horticultural center of the Pacific down in, in Victoria mm-hmm. off in urban and basically from then ripped up my my backyard in Victoria which was a tiny little probably mm, 1200 <laughs> square foot very concentrated raised beds everything I could do essentially in this little area. And then around 2012, we moved out of, we found a, a property here in Duncan that was that's about 12 acres and we've been developing that wow. ever since. Have you got 12 acres of crops? 
Yeah, not entirely. And actually, but like for example, right now we do have an acre that's that's fully concentrated with blueberries that are about five years old now, so they're mature producing, and they're they're like literally in arms width apart from each other, so they're very concentrated in that area. And we've added in two different sections of probably acre, acre and a half each that are fruit orchards that include cherries and plums and pears. And we actually have a new addition that we're trying out that we hope within a few years to, to have, have some almonds eventually. And then we did dig an irrigation pond. We're on wells here, and it's not clear in our particular area what the long-term effects of climate change will be on the wells in the area, especially given some of the usage by the dairy farms in the area of water and what ultimately will happen. So for our own crop security, we put in about a little over an acre, acre and a half irrigation pond. Right. So adding up those things, and then we that leaves us six or seven acres of sort of mixed field crops where a good portion of that every year tends to be green, in green manures, and I'll explain a little later okay. what, what we need. we can by go that. into that. Nitrogen fixing crops. So that's sort of a rough idea of how we divide out the, the property at any one time. Mm-hmm. So it's not definitely not 12 acres of solid <laughs> crops per se. <laughs> right. So about six to seven acres of in crop. Mm-hmm. And what, what kind of crops? Like you mentioned blueberries and some plums and you're going into almonds. Do you sell all of those or are there some things that you're not quite ready to sell yet? What are your main crops there? The main crops, that would be blueberries and garlic primarily. Mm. Um, it's really easy to sell blueberries for, for a pretty good price because there's a high demand uh, and they're, they're a quality product. The, the garlic as well, we tend to, it seems like most of BC, or at least certainly the island, is just absolutely a fantastic place for growing tremendous garlic. So we have we have a variety of red Russian that, that tends to sell really well and bring a premium price and is delicious. I've, I uh, saw a picture of it on your Facebook page. The garlic was mm. as big as your hand. I was amazed yes. at that. Yes. Many people ask us, oh, is that elephant garlic, which apparently we've never actually tried to grow elephant garlic, but apparently it's a very large variety that is much less flavorful than traditional garlic varieties. And so we're saying, no, it's actually an extremely pungent form of a red Russian. That's amazing. I'm going to come over there and buy my garlic there then. I'm going to have to tell my... (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Come on over. Yeah, because when I grow it, it doesn't grow that big, I'll tell you that. But maybe after today, I'll learn how to do that. So we do, like, the other things are more, I guess the other crops that we have are a bit more minor in terms of the, the sale volume. We we tend to grow as much of our tomatoes that we can can and, and keep for ourselves and then sell a lot of extras that we have left over from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I We do have a fair amount of volume in terms of walnuts and hazelnuts to take the, the Food Safe BC course where... You can, you're allowed to sell produce. Basically, the idea is that once you've taken raw produce and done something with it, for example, tomatoes, canning them, and, mm-hmm. or, or making jam out of uh, blackberries, right. these things you actually have to have your food safe license right. to do. And the same applies to, of course, our, our walnuts. So once once they're shelled and or toasted, I would have to have my food safe license in order to sell them. Uh-huh. So that's sort of on the plate eventually because we do have some pretty good production in terms of our walnuts and our hazelnuts at this time, at least until the blight comes along for the hazelnuts. Uh-oh. It's a different issue. Um, eventually, apparently, it will. Um, we do sell the apples. We do actually have about a half an acre of sunchokes on the go constantly because they constantly regenerate themselves every year. And you get some demand for that, but not a whole lot. No, it's a new market, I think, for that. Mm-hmm. People don't know how to cook them, how to eat them, how to... Right. They look funny, too. It's they like, do. Hey, what happened to this potato? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, it's sort of an unknown, a very niche a niche market. <laughs> it is. So far, yeah. Why did you go to this model of veganic farming? I mean, you said you were, you're vegan, so it made mm-hmm. sense. Were there other reasons that you chose this method? I guess, yeah, being vegan is the main thing because mm-hmm. as a vegan, most of the things in your life you want to tr- do your at least utmost as far as you can trace it back to avoid... Uh, any consumption or use of, of any animal products. Mm-hmm. And, and once you actually start delving into an organic agriculture, the things that are involved in organic planting, for example, there's the, the approved as bone meal and blood meal, and of course, not to mention manure, all these things are basically 
ultimately they end up being the byproducts of an animal agricultural industry. So by purchasing, you're actually inadvertently supporting an industry that, that exploits animals. So it's actually even more than just trying to avoid the products themselves because the products themselves actually represent and under, underwrite uh, the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they call them co-products meaning that they're not just a byproduct that, oh, we've got some of this left over, let's see if we can sell it. It's actually supporting the killing of the animals by selling their manure. Mm -hmm. And like, just to give an example of the, the local dairy farms here, they they tend to over the winter months they will they'll develop large piles because they can't actually distribute the manure in the winter because the ground is too wet can't get a tractor out on them mm. so what they do they'll, they're they're piling up manure and feces and urine mix in a sort of a slurry and they get to a point in the spring where they've got to do something with the stuff because there's only a limited amount of space where you can safely and especially if they're close to the river they they can safely store it. Um, it's very much in their interest in order to continue with their business to get rid of this stuff. Right. It's mainly an ethical reason for you. Are there any other reasons that you see why we shouldn't use blood meal or manure or bone meal? I think there's a strong environmental component because, and ironically, most people go into organic gardening out of a sense of, oh, I'd like to, you know, want to preserve the natural environment. I, I would mm-hmm. like to to garden and, and have food in a safer manner, the more sustainable manner. But what ends up happening is they and they don't realize that actually this this one of the biggest contributions, for example, to climate change or to you've got water quality issues or water quantity issues mm-hmm. at the same time. You know, climate change is gonna have a large impact on us in all of these areas and animal agriculture absolutely exacerbates all of them. So it, it becomes almost a, an irony that in a way organic gardening would help to prop up these things that are themselves so destructive to the environment. Right. But I think environmentalism can be just as strong as a push as as veganism in a sense to go towards veganic gardening, mm-hmm. even for someone who's not a vegan. Good point. I do grow some of my own food, and I try to buy organic food, which is, you know, maybe better for the environment a little bit than others, and better for me than Mm -hmm. other uh, uh, conventionally grown produce, but there is that underlying feeling of the the animal co-products being used to grow that food. And it's interesting to see that some of the natural grocery stores are actually beginning to to catch on to, to the trend. And, and apply labeling that's appropriate to that. For instance, we were we were actually in Hawaii recently at a natural market, and they had an entire section where the the farms that had contributed to these produce was veganic, and so they would label, hey, this is specifically, you know, not just organic but veganic produce. I thought, well, that's great that they're actually starting to, you know, somebody on the on the marketing end is actually noticing and and beginning to apply that, which is a good sign. Yeah, that's that is a good sign. I'm glad that that's that it's starting to happen. And I guess you're an early adopter, so thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, we're, we're surprised to be so. <laughs> so, can you help some of us family gardeners, um, small time gardeners, starting from scratch to set up a veganic garden in our backyards or in our community gardens? Yes, you mentioned in the backyard, so we'll assume more of an, on a small scale. We also do have a, a devoted area of around 2,000 square feet full of concentrated raised beds for sort of our own kitchen garden, if you will. Okay, so how do you make the raised beds? So, yeah, for the raised beds, basically we've gotten um, cedar cedar wood and built up basically large, what you would almost look at as large sandboxes. Mm-hmm. And these boxes, we basically start with uh, some topsoil to start it out, but then we'll add some mulch and a bit of compost, maybe put in a little bit of alfalfa meal to start out if you're going to start in the spring and you want to actually have some, some minerals and nutrients in there for the first round of growing. Probably if I was beginning out, I would actually recommend starting something in the late summer so that you can begin in the fall with some good cover crops that can help build the soil up over the winter, uh, develop, store some nitrogen, have some nitrogen being fixed by your crops so that in the spring you can till, till or hoe actually your plants under and begin with a, sort of a fresh slate for your first veggie garden. So I know that some plants, particularly uh, legume type plants, alfalfa, I think fenugreek, uh, clover, some things like that have little nodules on their roots that actually fix yes. nitrogen. And That's right. 
so that is going to, you're going to use that as um, a, a green uh, cover in the winter and then till it under in the spring? Yes, exactly. There's there's two components to that. The first is, as you mentioned, is because of the rainfall in our areas, many of the, the nutrients that plants need actually leach out of the soil because we get there right. a, a good amount of rain here, as everyone mm-hmm. knows. Um, and nitrogen tends to be one of the things that, that tends to wash out first. And so in order for plants to thrive in our particular climate, we, we need to be able to feed nitrogen back into them. So legumes... Um, are of course nitrogen fixers on their own so planting those guys helps you to get some nitrogen back into your soil um, the other half of that is bulk organic matter the, the more bulk you can get in there and, and then basically to build up your soil with organic matter it sort of cascades into to good things happening for your soil it lightens the soil it helps it to be more pliable it helps it to hold moisture better and have more aeration patches for the roots can breathe mm-hmm. and so that they can you know, absorb minerals better. You know, when you've got lots of organic matter in your soil, you're going to bring in worms. You're going to have a better, healthy ecology overall. So, to, to sort of the double-edged bit of this is to try to get some get plant matter in there that'll either produce or hold on to the nitrogen over the winter, mm-hmm. and it can actually hold on to bulk organic matter so that you can use that until that under in the spring for your before planting. Okay. So you mentioned a mulch. What would mm-hmm. you use for a mulch? With veganic gardening, you kind of have to, to look out in some areas. Sometimes they do incorporate manure into it, so you have to uh, go in and ask, you know, what, what exactly are the components of, of your, the mulch that you're selling? What we tend to look for is, is it mostly just plant and tree matter, branches and things like that? That tends to be, I guess, if you would, a safe bet because there's not going to be any animal products in there, but also you're a lot less likely to have any, any chemicals or fertilizers involved in those. Um, another example I like to use is, is something you can buy in, in bags. It's called mushroom manure. Um, now, mushroom manure can be the products, basically, of, of growing mushrooms, and it can be entirely plant matter, depending on what the grower used. But it could also incorporate manure if they used it in their growing. So if, if they've got an ingredients list on their, their bag, that's something useful you can look for okay. uh, in terms of a concentrated compost as well. But but if they, if they don't tell you, then you're kind of left not – certain in which case it's better to err on the side of caution right most of the time apparently it is it, it is free of manure at least much of the time okay so we got the mulch and we got the mm-hmm. alfalfa um and we got the raised beds which you said you did with cedar which is interesting to me because i thought cedar was phytotoxic toxic to plants in terms of the raised bed construction, mm-hmm. yes, that's I did say cedar for that. Um, the cedar boards that are around your beds are, are really, I, I don't think there's enough that would leach out from that to actually affect your growing, um, especially since they're boards themselves and they tend to be impervious to rotting to some degree. Uh, the problem would be if in your crops if you actually use cedar mulch because the smaller particles would be breaking down quickly and would be probably putting in the stuff into the soil that you wouldn't want. But okay. the cedar the cedar boards themselves shouldn't really create much of a problem. Okay. Okay, that's good. Good, you, good clarification. And also, you would certainly not want to use treated lumber because there's arsenic and who knows what other kinds of chemicals on Absolutely, those. yeah. Yeah, the, anything that looks greenish or has that uh, mm-hmm. those little holes in them, yeah, that, those you want to avoid that. I think, yeah. Ooh, that's good to know, yeah. So now if we've got the soil properly conditioned, so it's holding moisture yet it's draining and all that, then what what kind of nutrients do we need to add in and what do you use for those? Here, again, in the north rainy climate, there are some some minerals and nutrients that tend to leach out faster than others. Of course, we've already talked about nitrogen Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, the the idea of trying to to plant nitrogen-fixing crops in order to help make up for at least some of the nitrogen that gets leached away. One of the main things that we tend to go for, uh, a good solid nitrogen fertilizer, is alfalfa meal. Um, Now, theoretically, there's good nitrogen amounts in a lot of seed meals, but you have, there there are difficulties with, let's take examples of cottonseed meal and um, canola meal is another one. Mm -hmm. Canola, of course, is extensively GMO modified, so it's really, really difficult to find organic uh, canola meal. If you can do so, that's it's a good bulk organic nutrient to add into your soil for nitrogen and for some other both macro and micronutrients. Um, but alfalfa, of course, itself is a nitrogen fixer, so the the meal tends to concentrate and have a pretty good kick of of slow release nitrogen for your plant. So we we have 
had pretty good success using alfalfa meal as, as a base for a lot of our, our veganic fertilizers. Okay, sounds good. Okay, and what about for phosphorus? What would you use for that? Rock phosphate, rock phosphate is the main thing that we use for, for phosphorus. You can buy that mostly, at, and again, same with alfalfa meal, you can buy rock phosphate and alfalfa meal at, at seed and feed stores. You can do things like, around here we have stores like Bucker Fields or um, Share Care, mm-hmm. and in Victoria there's a Borden Organics, or Borden Seed and Feed, I think it is, Mercantile, something like that. Okay. Uh, so you can you can find these things at most any feed, seed and feed store should have alfalfa meal and rock phosphate in, in lime at the very least. So those are sort of the at least cover you on the big three nutrients. Okay, would you use the dolomite lime or? I haven't really seen a need for using anything other than dolomitic, since at least the dolomitic adds in the magnesium mm-hmm. that the, the the regular one doesn't have. So since magnesium is another thing that tends to leach out of the soil, it we we tend to almost exclusively just use the dolomitic. Okay. Now that so we've got your our mulch or, and our our main nutrients taken care of. Is there anything else? And and the pH. Is there anything else that you would suggest? Well, two of the things that we also add into the main NPK nutrients, um, one of them would be kelp meal. And the reason for that, or if, if you have access to the ocean and can go dredge some kelp from, from the seashore and, and compost that, that actually is a fantastic source of micronutrients because the ocean itself, of course, is the, the biggest nutrient sink that we have. So everything that goes down there tends to concentrate a lot of various, a wide variety of, of minerals that, that your plants may need. Um, so, but we tend to find just adding a little bit of kelp meal probably does more than enough for the the smaller amounts of micronutrients that we're needing in our in our garden and planting. And where could you get that if you were um, if you don't if you don't live by the sea, where? Right. Um, I have found kelp meal at Sharecare. Trying to think at Buckerfields, they probably have it as well. I think most of the time we're getting it at Sharecare though. Okay. Again, seed and seed and feed stores should have most of these extra extras for sure. Okay. Um, and then, and then, as a, a good addition, is also some of the things you can grow to get micronutrients are a plant called comfrey, which is actually a, a it's an excellent large leaf, deep rooted plant that tends to to pull a lot of micronutrients out of the soil and concentrate them. Um, same for stinging nettles; mm-hmm. they tend to and they grow like weeds as well. Once you get them going, they tend to be really good concentrators of micronutrients so one of the things you can do is either cut those guys and compost them or you can even make for i guess for for a more acute uh, application to your plants make something called compost tea which is basically taking a lot of these these plants and steeping them in water for a week or two until it practically stinks to high heaven and it's got sort of a dark it looks very much like tea and then then sort of diluting it a bit and watering your plants with it and it, it tends to be a good concentrated dose of a wide range of making your own liquid fertilizer then okay exactly and some people conjecture actually that in addition to the the extra nutrients that compost tea can add it it can also to some extent be a form of, of pest deterrent um, I don't know if that's actually just a complication of the fact that you're making your plant healthier, which tends to be one of the best pest deterrents in the first place, or mm-hmm. if it actually is any components of the tea them- itself that, that is deterrent, but it's certainly worth a try. Now, do, let's go into that now, because there's sometimes there's some uninvited guests in the garden. How do you, <laughs> how do you deal with those, those little bucks? Yeah, exactly. That, that's a very big issue in terms of organic gardening, because obviously part of the respect for life all mm-hmm. goes down to at least as far as we can see which is ironic i suppose but it, at the same time we're not actually we're, our, our pest control i guess methods may be a bit more laissez-faire or or relaxed than perhaps another organic gardener not concerned with the same things right um so in our cases in general we're I guess live and let live tends to be i guess an underlying philosophy i think in terms of there are ways, of course, to prevent pest infestations, and that I think is your best your best way to to combat pests is to not have them in the first place, or at least to to do things that will deter them from from coming along to begin with. So some of those things, for example, as I mentioned, the the best thing that that we learned, at least as far as from the master gardener class, to deter pests is actually to have a a, a healthy plant in the first place. So healthy plants, plants on their own 
have mechanisms and ways to fight off pests or to, to warn pests that they're strong and healthy and that they don't need to be coming along. And some, some actually theorize that when you get an infestation from a pest, it actually is an indication that your plant may not be as healthy as it needs to be. Um, so healthy plants are the, the first thing that you can do to, to try to, I guess, combat the pest population. Okay. Um, the other thing has to do with, with variety. Pests tend to be attracted to monocropping uh, issues. So if you've got a whole bunch of stuff all in one area, that's going to sort of lay the groundwork for more of a, an issue if you have infestation because the same pests will come in and then they start multiplying and the next thing you know, you've practically got a plague on your hands. Exactly. Uh, so you can, the, the more that you can divide up or split up some of your crops and mix them up with each other, especially when you're talking about a small garden area, the, the better chances they're going to have. And, and this also, of course, I guess contributes to uh, more of a healthy plant regime because obviously the many plants all concentrated in the same area are pulling from the same nutrient source and they're less likely to be as healthy because they're competing with each other. Whereas in when you have plants that are different plants co-planted beside each other, they tend to pull from or have different nutritional needs. So they may end up actually being healthier on their own in that environment than they would be otherwise because they're they're not depleting the soil in the same manner all right. at the same time, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So, so that may be one of the reasons that they have uh, better success when it comes to, to plants. Um, another, another strategy as such is actually to plant something called a bait plant. I've had some success, if given the example of planting both spinach and lettuce together mm -hmm. uh, in terms of combating aphids. Now, aphids absolutely love spinach. It's almost impossible to, <laughs> to have spinach certainly in certain times of year, especially in the early spring when they're just getting going because spinach being an early crop and it's more cold-hardy than some. Uh, it, it tends to be an attractor to aphids before the, the, the before your ladybugs and, and predatory insects have had a chance to, to recover from the winter and build up in sufficient numbers to actually do anything about the aphids at that point. So if you can plant some plants like spinach to attract pest insects away from your lettuce, for example, theoretically you, you'll have less chance of lettuce being overly infested with aphids, uh, at least before the month or so into summer when the ladybugs start coming along in force. Okay, so sacrificial spinach. Mm -hmm. Sacrificial plants to some extent. <laughs> right. If you're using good steady growth for plant health and growth and you've got a healthy ecology with bugs and lots of predatory insects coming and going as they please because you're not using any pesticides, basically the whole thing tends to be a lot better off and you tend to have a lot less pest issues when you've got a healthy ecology going on. Um, now, to, to revert back to the, the plant nutrition issue, and also this goes back to the animal ag um, and animal fertilizers as well, mm -hmm. one of the things we learned in the Master Gardener course is that vegetables in particular, the, the, the concept of slow and steady rinse the race. So what you want in order to optimize plant health is not a plant that's just gonna go grow like gangbusters and just be really big, really fast, but, which is actually, Interestingly enough, that's what happens when you tend to use synthetic fertilizers, but it also, the, the same concept applies to if you're applying, if someone is applying lots of concentrated manure or animal-derived mm -hmm. fertilizers. There tends to, plants tend to experience, because they've got it in a sense, a bonanza of minerals and, and nutrients coming in, they tend to grow really quickly and really fast, but that doesn't make for a healthy plant necessarily because they actually tend to overgrow themselves, and then what happens is you get a bloom and then die off because they can't sustain the growth that they've done, and that tends to contribute to their health going down. And this is another good reason that plant-based fertilizers may be actually superior in terms of plant health. The, the plant-based fertilizers like alfalfa meal provide a slow release ah. of, of nutrients to the plant so the plant can grow steadily along and continue to do so and it, it, it overall it suggested that that actually is much better for their health and they're, they're maintaining their, their strength and their vitality. So they're growing slower but stronger and uh, plants do produce different things to keep pests or animals yeah. from eating them, right? So. Yeah. A good example, I think, for this also is tomatoes. In, in our climate, of course, we actually have to start tomato seedlings before the last frost. So yeah. in order to get a good head start with your, your tomatoes, you want to, of course, begin them in, in a greenhouse or in some isolated environment out of the frost. Now, tomatoes tend to, if you're not careful, they can actually really grow too quickly and become all spindly. And then the next thing you know, when they're ready to go harden out, to go out in the, in the normal temperatures once the, 
the last frost has occurred, you can actually adversely affect their health because it's too much of a shock for them. Whereas in if you've, and that's actually one of the things a lot of gardeners will recommend people if you're going to buy your tomatoes from, from a seed and feed store or mm-hmm. from a, well, you want to buy the short squat ones because they're the ones that have sort of grown, they're growing slowly and firmly and that they'll be less likely to, to actually be affected adversely. Basically, they're, they're, they're growth spurt truncated. Um, right. Anyway, so it's the same kind of idea with, with fertilizing plants. That's interesting. I actually have volunteer tomatoes in my uh, yeah. garden that grow every year. They don't, yep. I don't even plant tomatoes anymore. They just come up. Yeah, it's probably some some mixed variety that yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to see what comes what it produces. Yeah, it's well it's it's the small it's uh, the cherry and the and the grape tomatoes. Yep. It's not the mm-hmm. bigger ones, but it's it's yep. there's a lot of them. I consider them a weeds because there's so many uh-huh. of them. They're getting into that's, that's everything true. else. Yeah. They um, certainly can. Getting back to the pests again. I had mm-hmm. um an infestation of wireworms in my potatoes. So I okay. what I did was I basically fallowed that part of the garden for, I put other things there, but I didn't put mm-hmm. any kind of root crop in there for four years, yeah. which is what I was told it would take that long to get rid of them. And it seems to be okay now. This, I think, leads to a discussion a bit on crop rotation and how, mm-hmm. how that is important. Absolutely. And you, you've done the right thing there that it's very difficult to combat wireworms. And really the only thing that is can work is patience and crop rotation in that case. And if you can get something that's non-host for them uh-huh. uh, and do that for several years, it tends to drastically diminish their populations. And then you can come back with things like potatoes uh, and garlic. Right. But surprisingly, our wireworms are so voracious around here that actually every now and then we see little bites out of the garlic, which is unheard oh. of from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> and of course they, but there's also in terms of just a, as a note on potatoes, there's different varieties of potatoes that will be affected by wireworms in different ways. Um, we've we've done, and, and farming tends to be a, a on, constantly ongoing experiment, I've found. Um, there are varieties of, of potatoes that will absolutely get slaughtered by the wireworms, and then there are varieties that, particularly Yukons, I would recommend, where the skin is much, much thicker and tougher and tends to develop at a time that the wireworms are less, uh, I guess, are less prone. They, they tend to be an earlier variety, earlier to mid-season potato, whereas mm-hmm. and I think the longer a potato is in the ground, the more susceptible it tends to be. So the late season ones are going to see more issues with wireworms. Okay. So if you can get something that's early season, mm-hmm. and if you can get something with a nice, strong, thick skin like Yukon's, you're going to have a lot less problems for that potato crop, even though the wireworms do love potatoes. So, so there are little things like that. You can even kind of work your way around it, I suppose, if you don't mind a little bit of blemishes here and there on your produce. Like just a, just different varieties. Yep, try different varieties and see see what they like and what they don't like cuz some varieties they will just absolutely decimate and you'll think to yourself, "Oh my goodness, I just I just can't plant potatoes at all." But that's not true. There's a very wide spectrum of damage depending on the different varieties of potatoes. Can you uh, go over just quickly how you would create a compost? Sure. In our case, I tend to think of compost as almost like a recipe for pancakes. There, there's a million different recipes out there, and everybody has their own favorite, and they always insist that theirs is the best. And, and I'm, I'm definitely not going to insist that mine is the best, but I think developing compost pile has to be done with the view of what's going to work best for your particular situation. And so for us, the, the biggest threat to our compost, and because we're most of the things that we contribute for our own compost is basically vegetable scraps from our own usage. Mm-hmm. It tends to be that we want to avoid the mice and the rats. For us, our, our composts are almost entirely made up of, uh, or at least they're contained within metal barrels, so, so oh. the rats and the mice won't get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, the, the underlying formula for any and all compost development has to be, I'm going to have this much of my, what they call your, your greens or your nitrogen, the things that, are, that are, get smelly if you don't do something with them. Your kitchen sink vegetable leftovers, for example, needs to be mixed in with a certain percentage of what they would call a brown or a carbon-based admixture to go in with that. There's all compost pails that you can turn and mix and it tends to aerate it that way. Alternately, I've found just as successful to, especially the thinner layers you can make, if you lay down a layer of your vegetable waste and then add a thick layer of carbon-based, basically wood chips or sawdust on top of that, okay. and then make make your lasagna layer that way, basically you, you can have a pretty good success rate. The, the main thing, too, that people need to consider with compost is 
in all likelihood, especially in a small garden, you're never going to be able to produce enough compost to actually get back and, and be fully sustainable in your own garden. It's just not possible to produce enough material because, like, to give you an idea, our own, as vegans and, and the amount of vegetables that we, we eat, the leftover mm-hmm. compost that our kitchen produces after it's been burned down by the microorganisms, we're probably looking at less than half of a 50-gallon barrel per year. So it ends up being an extremely small amount once the microorganisms take over and start working it down. Basically, while they're doing the task of converting these, this organic matter that we give them into you know, useful compost, the volume of material itself goes down drastically. It's, it's almost amazing to watch a good compost pile in action. It, it's, it's an excellent source of nutrient, but it's probably never going to be ultimately fully sustainable and be able to distribute evenly everywhere over your entire garden, at least with your own usage, um, in which case what brings in, well, in order to, to have a sustainable garden, you need to bring in some outside inputs in terms of a small-scale garden. It's it's relatively small amount. It's going to, you know, you're not going to get as much as you think out of it because it definitely does shrink with time. And it it is, of course, very excellent fertilizer. It's an excellent concentrated source once you've got it down, but don't expect that it's going to be a, a huge or a massive, you know, just cure-all for the garden, in a sense. It's more, it, for, for our perspective, it's really more of a, this is a good way to get rid of our, our own vegetable waste and use it more than, <laughs> right. than it's going to be the, the fix-all for the garden as such. Well, we got to do something with it, Absolutely. so we might as yep. well and, and we should. recycle it into It's our... really just a matter, and to give you an idea of ratios, I, I would... Anything, you're definitely always going to need more browns than you have the greens. So if you're dumping, let's say one, let's say your your kitchen garden produces a two-gallon bucket of, of vegetable waste every week. On top of that, when you're layering, I would say do at least twice as much of the sawdust slash uh, wood chips to, to mix in with that because you're going to need a lot more of it in order for it to be the right ratio for the microbes to go in and, and have enough variation to do their job. That's good. Um, I have a, a new compost system that I'm not really happy with, but it, it is a rotational thing. You can turn this big, huge barrel around, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of room in it to put a lot of the, the brown. So right. I'm thinking of redoing it a different way this year. Maybe I'll look into those metal barrels. That sounds like a good, because we have a lot of rats in the lower mainland, and yes. you know, a compost is just a little invitation to dinner for them. It so is, and they can get any compost bin that is plastic. It can be breached by them. They're, they are such. They can. It is amazing They're what they amazing can do with it. They can. They can chop through plastic like nothing. It's got to be a metal barrel. Drill some holes in the bottom of the barrels for drainage. Some small holes, like less than the size, half the size of your small finger, just so it can drain. And then the metal barrel at least is secure, and that'll give enough aeration. And then start layering and <laughs> see what happens. Okay. From you were going to talk about crop rotation a little bit more, I think. Just sort of, I guess, as an addition to my comment about how you you have to, at least with a small-scale garden, you're going to have to bring in outside inputs. It's almost impossible from, from any gardening perspective, whether it's veganic or, or just plain organic. It's, it's really difficult to grow enough of everything in your own small backyard garden to actually replenish and make it sustainable by mm-hmm. itself. So there there will be some materials to bring in, and, that, and of course the composting, the having bringing in some browns is a good example of the things that you need to bring in. Um, but on a larger scale, for example, here on our on our farm, we try to most of the time in the summertime. Our field is probably made up of, I would guess, 50% or more of it is actually at any one time it's green manure because we've we've got to keep the soils basically going and replenishing themselves more than taking from them because without being able to bring in things like manure, for example, from the outside, which a typical organic farm would do, we have to actually figure out a way to develop it on ourselves. And ultimately, the bottom line to that is it takes up space. Uh, and so we have to we have to be able to devote a considerable amount of space to crops that will be used either as mulch or as fertilizer for for a future growing. Right. Okay. Um, to give it to give it a great example of I think one of the best for a small scale garden is called faba beans. They're actually in the pea family, but they tend to be just one of the most fantastic green manure crops that there is because not only do they fix nitrogen, but the plants themselves actually put on considerable bulk. And in addition to the considerable bulk that the plants put on, their roots also extend 
way down in, and they're pretty soft-rooted, but they, they, they put out an extensive root system that does a fantastic job of aerating the soil. So they really have some tremendous benefits for veganic gardeners in terms of, of building up the soil quality for a small garden. So they're highly recommended to get some fava beans in there if you can. And fava beans are so good for you, too. So mm-hmm. it's a win-win. That's good. Well, I think we've covered a lot today, and mm-hmm. uh, you've certainly given me some really good ideas. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? One of the things that, just to go back to the whole concept of the veganic farming versus organic, I guess one of the arguments that tends to come back against veganic farming is organic farmers saying, well, so I've got all these cows, and you know, even if they're treated humanely, then what they're doing is they're contributing to... Um, you know, again, concentration of fertilizer via their poop, and so um, even if they're organic, and um, you know, why can't I use their their poop themselves? And of course, we talked, we touched on the nutritional issue and the overgrowth issue, of course, but. Mm-hmm. I think the other half tends to be from a from a, a resource sustainability perspective. If you do the math, ultimately on and I was talking earlier about oh, I need X percentage of of my land to be grown for green manures at any one time in order to fertilize a smaller portion for usage. Well, it's the same concept for people who are growing cows and they're grazing in this area and they're concentrating the nutrients, but you have to add in the factors for them of the the animal has to sustain itself. It's got to build its own body mass. It has metabolism. You know, it's, it's no energy is free as the physicists tell us. There's always going to be, you know, you're losing some, some of the, the potential energy, some of the nutrients that could have gone directly to your soil from developing a plot of land using green manure and versus using animal products, you're actually losing in the big mathematical picture the, the total amount of nutrients that is available. Mm-hmm. So even if animals are nutrient are nutrient uh, condensers, they they don't actually. It's still a lose lose situation because you're not producing as much as you possibly could ultimately when it comes to to growing crops that would feed a person right so the same i guess the the bottom line is the same amount of land that would be used for let's say someone combining animal ag with with vegetable farming mm-hmm. would actually ultimately need just a bit more land use to make the same type of nutrient contribution because of the usage of nutrients that the animals themselves are taking up right exactly yeah well, that makes sense good that's good math <laughs> <laughs> or physics, both, I guess. Math, math is good. Yep, math doesn't lie. <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for your time today um, and all of the information. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And once again, that was Master Gardener Stephen Hunt of Brightside Blueberries and such. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM, CFRO, Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, B.C., Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us here next Friday, March 20th at noon. Our featured guests next week will be author Christopher Locke and documentary filmmaker Allison Argo. Be sure to check out our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream and download past shows. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. Now we'll leave you with a song, I Build This Garden For Us by Lenny Kravitz. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today and remember to be kind to the animals.